The Chicago History Museum opens a new exhibit showing women's 1930s and 40s fashion. Chicago's very first veterans home to open at the end of the year after 10 years of building. And a look at Language Rooms, a play directed by a Columbia alum. Show us what Columbia looks like! This is what Columbia looks like! Published since 1973. I'll give my life for this cause, and I will die for this cause. This is Chronicle Headlines. And now on to our first story with staff reporter Casey Watts to talk to us about her story on the Chicago History Museum exhibit, Silver Screen to Mainstream, American Fashion in the 1930s and 40s. Hi, Casey. Tell us a little bit about your story. Hi. Yeah, so um, this exhibit that opened at the Chicago History Museum focuses primarily on fashion and the influence that it had from films of the silver screen in the 1930s and 40s era. And it also focuses on how originally um, like the fashion capital was in Paris, but when the Depression and World War II came around, the focus kind of shifted more so to Hollywood. And then also Chicago played a really big role in that because there were so many affluent women here and people who were wealthy and who could afford to purchase garments from classic designers like Chanel or Howard Greer or Valentina or Adrian. So, Casey, what kind of drew you to write this story? Like, are you interested in fashion or film? Personally, I love film, obviously, but I'm not very, like, educated in terms of film, but I love fashion. Fashion is my favorite thing, and I find it so intriguing to see how it's evolved over the years. And actually, when I was talking to Virginia Heaven, who curated the exhibit, she's also a professor here, but when I was speaking with her, she was talking about how a lot of people who have seen the exhibit so far have looked at it and said, I would wear those things today, which I think is so interesting to see how, while it was so long ago, like 80-something years ago, it has prevailed through time and is still something that people can look at today and appreciate and think that's beautiful and I would want to wear that now. And did they say kind of like their process of how they picked what they wanted specifically for this exhibit? Yeah, so this specific exhibit features 30 garments from the museum's permanent collection. So the museum has a collection of millions of items, as I was told by um, their curatorial affairs director and he was just said that they looked through their collection and they picked pieces that fit the theme of the exhibit and also obviously were they had enough time to preserve and make sure they could properly display for the exhibit and they chose the 30 garments from um the 1930s and 40s Hmm. So why is it that the clothes could still be worn today and, you know, pass off as like 2019 fashion? Uh, yeah, so I think the thing about that is that that era of fashion was so influential on modern American fashion. And it's this timeless, classic Hollywood star look that we still appreciate and emulate today. And I think that in just terms of its longevity, their classic silhouettes, their classic cuts, their classic colors, and it has just lived throughout time. 
Mm-hmm. And it, the exhibit, it's just women's fashion, right? Yes, it is just women's fashion. And did they say why they just wanted to do women's, not men's fashion? Not exactly, but I think this is my educated guess, but I think it has something to do with the fact that, you know, Hollywood film stars in the 30s and 40s were icons, and they were all women, and they were sought after, and everyone wanted to be them, and everyone wanted to look like them, and everyone wanted to wear what they were wearing, and that's why they had such a great influence over even the modern housewife. You know, they um, made patterns that were similar to dresses that stars have worn for housewives to make their dresses out of. And it was a huge industry to kind of give the public something that makes them feel like they're a little piece of Hollywood. Now, is the exhibit already opened or will it be opening? Yes, the exhibit opened April 8th and it'll be there until January 21st of 2020. So there's plenty of time to go see it. Oh, wow. That is a very long stretch. Did they say why? Uh, No, I actually am not sure on why it's open that long, but I do know that it took them 10 months to curate the exhibit. And actually, that's quite a short amount of time for the um, density of the exhibit. And uh, they really were put on a short timeline to push the exhibit out and they did which was cool and um you know did they say or you know you could give your opinion um why is it like so significant to have an exhibit like this in chicago and um where it's at you know yeah so a lot of women in the 30s and 40s in chicago were more on the wealthy side compared to a lot of areas in the United States, and they could afford to wear and buy designer pieces still. And that's not the case for many places in the U.S. So all of the dresses that are featured were once worn or owned by um, a Chicago woman of upper class. And there also are a few house dresses included in the collection, which may have been more of a middle-class woman's dress, but they still emulate the styles of the Hollywood stars on screen. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about the interviews that went down for this article. Who did you talk to? Yeah, so for this uh, particular story, I talked to, obviously, the uh, museum exhibit's curator, which was Virginia Heaven, who is also an associate professor here who teaches in the fashion department. Um, She was actually a guest curator at the Chicago History Museum, which was a really cool opportunity. And um, I also spoke to one of her students, which was very interesting, because I got to hear about how in the classroom she's just as passionate about fashion history as it comes across in the exhibit. And the student that I interviewed, Laura Luna, she was telling me about how history is not really her favorite thing, but when uh, Virginia teaches it, she gets this newfound passion and excitement for the topic, which I thought was really interesting. And I think that really shows in the exhibit. And how would you say, um, especially having like a, a professor from Columbia helping to curate such an exhibit like this, how does that represent Columbia as a whole? I think it's wonderful because obviously fashion and fashion history are Virginia's passion. And what she's doing at the History Museum is just an extension of what she's doing inside the classroom. And I personally can imagine that if I had her as a professor, being able to go see work that she's done out in the city has got to be a really cool and interesting 
you know, experience. And she actually told me that she was taking one of her classes to see the exhibit. And I think getting that inside look into the exhibit and extension of her vast knowledge is very fascinating, really cool opportunity that Columbia gives its students. Yeah, and going off of that, it's also a really great reason as to why we should make connections with our professors while we're students because, you know, she has her whole exhibit in there and this is a fashion history course. So, I mean, that's a really great thing to do. So those were all of our questions, but is there anything else that you'd like to talk about when it comes to the story? I think everyone should just go check out the exhibit. I mean, it looks visually so pleasing and it's got this great aesthetic to it and it's so interesting to see the fashion combined with the history and you know it's there for a long time like you have basically almost a year to go see it so make sure you get out there before january 2020 yeah well thank you casey for talking with us so that's all for this story but stay tuned for more for our next story we're here to talk with staff reporter kendall polidori about her veteran story kendall can you tell us a little bit about your veteran story yeah, so I actually stumbled upon this story just while I was reading news of my own. Um, and I saw that for the first time in Chicago, um, there will be a veterans home. And um, through the Illinois Department of Veterans Affairs, there are four other veterans homes in Illinois. Um, but they, I think the closest one to the Chicago area is about an hour south. So this is the first one in Chicago, and it's going to be located in Norwood, Norwood Park, um, and it's actually a pretty big deal because they've been planning to complete this veterans home um, and, you know, make it accessible for about 10 years now. So it's gone through a lot of challenges, um, a lot of roadblocks, but um, it's set to be completed by the end of 2019. Yeah, so how did you come across this story? Yeah, so I, um, you know, I read news of my own, um, and I believe it was on CBS that I saw it. It was their online article, um, and they mentioned that after 10 years that it will finally be completed. So, um, you know, I wanted to talk to people myself, kind of get a little bit more information, um, you know, why it took 10 years, um, so I talked to, I think, about five different people, including um, students here, just, you know, what they thought about the home um, and kind of what the home will include. So for people who may not know, a veteran's home is basically like a private nursing home, um, but it's specified for veterans themselves. So it is for like older people who do or may need like more assistance. Um, I know they said for this specific veterans home, they will include like an independent living option. So people, you know, if they're older, if they just want to go there and like have that community of people that are like them, um, they can do that. And, you know, they may not need more assistance. Um, but yeah, it's basically treated like a nursing home where they have a variety of different skilled nurses that can meet a number of different needs. Mm -hmm. And you said that it took 10 years to complete this. Did you find out why? Yeah, so there were a couple of things. Um, I believe the first one, um, it was just they couldn't meet the budget. Um, they didn't have enough money to complete it. Um, then another reason was, I believe, like the the drawing plan of how the home was supposed to look and how the layout was supposed to be. It just didn't meet the code 
um, which I'm not too sure on, like, the specifics of that, um, but they did have to go back and, like, redraw the plan for the home to make sure it meets the Illinois code. Um, and then I believe there was another reason. So um, the design flaw was actually due to um, earthquake resistance, and then um, they also experienced a budget impasse under um, former Governor Bruce Rauner. So, you know, they've had a couple bumps in the road and obstacles, but um, it's pretty great to see that, you know, even after 10 years, everyone stayed, like, strong, and they pushed to get this home built. Yeah, so are veterans' homes typically found everywhere else in the U.S.? Um, I, they are nationwide. I'm not too, sp- like, sure how many there are in the U.S., um, but I know in Illinois there's only four right now. Um, so they're not, you know, everywhere. They're not, like, a nursing home where in almost in every neighborhood or community that you go to, that'll be accessible. Um, so it was a pretty big deal to have one in the Chicago area because, um, when I spoke to Dave McDonough, um, who was the communications person for the Illinois Department of Veterans Affairs, um, he did say that there are many veterans that live in Chicago and they don't have that access to a home if they want it or if they need it. And they would have to travel, you know, an hour away and move that far away from their family and friends. Um, So he said that having one in Chicago is a great benefit to a lot of people because the population in Chicago is so large. So what is the significance of having one? I know you said the population is so large, but how many people can actually fit in this home? Yeah, so in this home specifically, um, there will be 200 beds. Um, So... You know, that is a pretty large number for veterans, I believe, because I don't think, you know, it's not an option for everyone. Not everyone wants to live in a veteran's home or a nursing home. Um, But they did say, like, um, with all the four homes combined, they have about 900 beds. So this will be adding another 200. Mm -hmm. And when was this initially proposed? Um, It was 10 years ago. I don't know the exact date, um, but yeah, 10 years ago, and they started, after it was proposed, I know they started construction, like, pretty quickly after, um, but then just as soon as it started, it was put on hold, so. Yeah, so they intended to have it done a while ago. Oh, yes, yeah, and, um, you know, they, after everything, they've been fighting for a really long time through a lot of different stuff to get it accomplished so mm-hmm. did they mention why they couldn't you know maybe tweak the budget a bit to get this going um no they did not say why um and i didn't really get numbers but i did when i did speak to dave mcdonough um he did say that um the Illinois Department of Veterans Affairs, with every project or development that they are part of, um, they ask for a 65% reimbursement. So that basically means that the Illinois Department of Veterans Affairs, they are fully funding this project from the get-go. So like, they have to pay, they have to make sure they have all the money for it, 
um, and then they pay for it. And then, you know, after a couple years, once the home is built, once it's up and going, um, they ask the state to pay them a reimbursement of 65%. Mm-hmm. So who were some of the sources that you spoke to for this story? Yeah, so I actually spoke to um, two students from Columbia um, who are veterans. And um, they both kind of had different views on the veterans' homes. I just asked them a little bit about their opinion, what they thought of it. And one of them was Scott Taylor, who is a senior here at Columbia, um, and he is a veteran from the Air Force. Um, and he was really, you know, for the veterans' home, he thought it was a great opportunity, and he said that it would benefit a lot of people. Um, but when I spoke to Seth Walter, who is a senior here, he was also in the Air Force, um, he gave me a little bit of a different opinion. He said he wasn't sure he was he could you know, be for it or be against it just because of his experiences that he's had with um, the Illinois Department of Veterans Affairs. And he said many people that he knows and he's talked to has had um, similar poor experiences. Um, And one of the examples he gave me was just that, um, you know, he was going through a tough time and he was seeking counseling and seeking somebody to talk to. Um, And when, you know, he reached out, it took from about October, that's when he initially reached out, he didn't get a, an appointment with them until January the next year. So it took a long time. And he just said that from his own experience, he just feels that, you know, this home is just a, another thing that they're doing. They're not really improving. Um, so that was a different point of view to receive. And I know a lot of people have different opinions, different views. Um, but he did say, even though, you know, he wasn't sure he could fully back it up, he did say if it is beneficial to people and if they do, you know, live up to what they're saying, he thinks it's a great thing as well. So I think it just depends on everybody's, especially veterans, their personal experiences and, you know, the experience they had when they were serving and their experience now. So, Mm -hmm. and you know, every home isn't the same. It's going to have different people, different nurses. Um, So we can't really say how this home will be, but it's projected to be a very positive thing for Chicago. Yeah. And you, just to backtrack a bit, you said that he said from October to January, did he ever find out why? Um, no, he wasn't given much information why. Um, he just said that it was kind of disheartening because, you know, he needed somebody to talk to at that moment that he was, you know, struggling with something. Um, and, you know, m- months going by, that thing that he was struggling with wasn't much of an intense struggle anymore. So he just said it kind of, you know, it was hurtful to him and not what he was expecting and what he was hoping for. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Kendall, for talking to us about this story. Thank you. That's all for this story, but stay tuned for more. And now on to our last story. We have Yasmin Shika, staff reporter for the Columbia Chronicle. Um, She wrote a story about the new play, Language Rooms. So, Yasmin, could you just tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so Language Rooms is a play that is coming to Chicago. It is the Midwest premiere. Um, The play is being directed by Columbia alum Kaiser Ahmed, who was born and raised in Bangladesh and actually immigrated here when he was about 11 or 12, I believe. 
and he pursued a degree in um, theater directing here at Columbia. And when he had the opportunity to get on this play and direct it, he was so quick to because the play is about an immigrant himself. So the play centers around a man named Ahmed who immigrates from Egypt to come to America. And he's actually working in, of all places, a Homeland Security Department. And he's deemed like the best at his job and everybody really, you know, likes him. And then all of a sudden his patriotism is put into question. And this is right after like post 9-11, like as soon as 9-11 happened, it takes place. And, you know, his his patriot patriotism is put into question because they start asking him questions. You know, he he immigrated from a foreign country in the Middle East. So the story in itself, yeah, it has a deeper meaning, but they talk about it in more so a comedic way, a dark comedic way, they call it, because they touch on the stereotypes of brown people immigrating to the United States. And it's ironic that it's, you know, having the Midwest premiere now because... You know, like, there's a lot of immigration issues in the United States as of right now. So, you know, it's supposed to be a lighthearted play, but at the same time, there's also a deeper meaning. And the play was originally written in 2007 by Yusuf L. Gundi, and the play has been aired, has been, you know, acted out in other areas of the United States um, including the West Coast and the East Coast. So, you know, this is just the Midwest premiere, but it's a big deal also because the person directing it is a Columbia alum who is very eager to get all of us Columbia students to go. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a really nice piece to write. So I was really excited to write it. Yeah, and what, like, drew your attention to language rooms? Like, why did you feel like you wanted to write this piece? Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm Middle Eastern, so I have family that... Um, immigrates to the United States. I was born here, but I mean, my father was an immigrant. So reading a story or anything to do with immigration is always eye-catching to me. But when I was reading the script um, and watching clips on the um, on the actual play on YouTube, um, I just, I, I laughed a little because there's so many stereotypes that they touch on and like I can relate because I my family's gone through this stuff and even me going back to the Middle East like sometimes these things happen too so it's 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 funny to like see that you know and I was like oh like what a great thing to write about you know like the whole the whole like directing board is minority and is a minority and typically of like Middle Eastern or Indian descent so I thought it was really cool to just write a story about you know us brown folks mm-hmm. <laughs> And what would you say is, like, the big, biggest significance of for Columbia students specifically since, you know, you said the director is a Columbia alum? Yeah, so the director was super nice. His name was Kaiser Ahmed, and Kaiser was really excited to do this um, to do this piece with us because he was such a big fan of Columbia, and he talks about how much he learned at Columbia and the connections that he made. He was telling me how before... He graduated, him and a couple of his classmates actually band together and created their own theater company. And the theater company is called Jackalope Theater. And that was 10 years ago because he graduated in 2008. But that was over 10 years ago, actually. What am I saying? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was over 10 years ago. And 
till this day, they're still they're still working all together, all these Columbia folks. And he loves Columbia so much, so he was so excited to do this interview because, you know, he, he really believes that in the process of Columbia and making connections with students and your faculty, he was really excited to get in the classroom with all of his professors. And he encourages students to continue to do the same thing in order to follow their dreams. And I think that's such, like, an important thing to know. And I know... As Columbia students, we're told that all the time, like, oh, make connections, like, network. But this is, like, a prime example of how making connections while you're at Columbia can do so many good things for you in the future. Um, I don't know if you said it, but um, where is the play being held? Yeah, so it's being held at the Den Theater, which is on North Milwaukee Avenue. Um, The exact address is in the article. Um, And it is airing on april 20th and it is staying until may 3rd awesome and then for columbia students was there like a discount or anything or it's just the same so it's actually a pay what you can to enter oh wow which is really cool because i've never heard of that before but they want people to see the show so they had a pay what you can option and tickets are as low as one dollar that's awesome yeah was there anything else that um, you think is really important for people to know about the story about Language Rooms? Yeah, I think Language Rooms is a really funny story. And I'm actually really excited because I'm taking my whole family to go see it because, you know, why not? It sounds great. Um, I think that a lot of hard work went into this by a minority community. And I think it's really important to not only encourage minorities to step out of their comfort zone because if you look at like the brown community it's more so you know like people don't really do things like this it's more so like let's be a doctor let's be a lawyer and that's speaking from like my own experiences um you know stepping out of your comfort zone to do something such as like playwriting and theater and acting that's a big deal especially in our community so um I I think it's really great. Not only encourage minorities to step out of their comfort zone, but also we should also encourage Columbia students to go see what a Columbia alum has done. Awesome. Thank you so much, Yasmin. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Chronicle Headlines. You can check out all of these stories and more in our print edition available on campus on our website at ColumbiaChronicle.com and our additional coverage on social media. We are at CC Chronicle on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, and The Chronicle on Facebook and YouTube. Chronicle Headlines is made possible with the collaboration of our staff of the Columbia Chronicle and WCRX-FM, Chicago's Underground, and the leadership of the Communications Department of Columbia College Chicago, Suzanne McBride, Chair. Chronicle Headlines is produced and hosted by Blaze Mesa, Kendall Palladori, and Yasmin Shika.